Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Asgardia by WSO2 is a developer-focused identity and access management solution. Offered as Identity as a Service, or IDAS, Asgardio by WSO2 creates seamless login experiences to your apps in minutes. Hello, you're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSP Magazine. This is Sean Martin. And today we're going to be looking at security and privacy from the IoT perspective, and we're going to take a take a detour into legislative land and figure out what's going on in different parts of the world and work being done to raise awareness and uh, hold people and entities accountable, hopefully, for the things they build and and the services they offer. And uh, of course, I'm I know enough to be just just dangerous enough uh, to, to be versed in this topic. Uh, thankfully, I know a lot of people that are way more versed than me, and uh, sometimes I connect with them through posts on social media. This one happens to come from, from a post that our guest David Rogers put together on LinkedIn, and uh, it was, uh, there was a shout-out to a, a mutual friend, Aaron Guzman, and I'm like, let's bring David on to talk about this topic IoT security and privacy, with a specific focus on uh, consumer stuff. David, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, thanks, Sean, and um, yeah, glad to know that somebody reached my LinkedIn post. <laughs> I, I was the one. No, I think I think it got pretty good, uh, pretty good traction. But uh, nonetheless, it's an important topic and one that I'm interested. in, One that hopefully many are or should be interested in, and. Uh, we're going to get into that. Before we do that, though, David, uh, a few words about who you are, what you're up to, and perhaps what prompted that post. Yeah, uh, well, um, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been involved in um, product security and what is now cybersecurity for, for a very, very long time. I uh, started out uh, in the semiconductor industry, ended up in, in the mobile industry, and uh uh, did a lot of work on embedded system hacking and and how people were breaking uh, mobile phones. And that kind of naturally led uh, to what is now sort of connected devices uh, and pro- product security as a discipline. Um, I've I've uh, I, I currently chair the the GSMA, the Mobile Industry Association, the their fraud and security group, which has thousands of of different uh, security managers and fraud managers from all around the world. And um, we're having to deal with everything from, from all types of devices, uh, you know, whether it's enterprise, consumer, industrial, all connecting to the mobile network. 
um, and, and then all of the problems that, that go with that, um, everything from legacy uh, through to new technology that, that, that is emerging. Uh, so it's quite a tough challenge. Um, I, I also have a business called Copper Hoss, and uh, we do loads of stuff in this space. Uh, we also do a lot of car car stuff as well, which is quite cool, future car security stuff. Uh, and, and to be honest, all of it ends up being the same stuff. Uh, it's all just PCBs with chips and software on, and half of it is all the same software. Uh, so so it, the, the amount of crossover is, is incredible. And, um, you know, we do a lot of work in the security research space. We're going to be at Black Hat and DEF CON in the next few weeks. Um, you know, most of the real change is actually coming out of the security research community. And with the IoT security work that's been going on by multiple governments around the world, there's been a real shift toward listening to the security research community. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. And, and hopefully uh, it will long continue. Yeah, so many fun things you get to get your hands dirty in, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, I know we, we, we exchanged a few emails uh, talking about Black Hat and DEF CON. I know you're doing some work there. And perhaps we'll have you on again to, to dig into maybe some of the, the, the car hacking or some of the other stuff that you have going on that week. Let's stay at the at the government level. We'll see where we go with this. But I'd I'd like your view because I know you, you've done some work that's that led to an act that's that's being uh, put into law soon in the UK. And um, with that, I think you've had some some exposure <laughs> to other other things going on from a legislative perspective around the world. So can you can you paint a picture globally for what's going on? Maybe start with the work that you did. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, uh, I think um, should also say from the outset, this is, all of this work is sort of standing on the shoulders of giants because uh, you know everything that's gone before, everything that's led up to this, and everything that will come in the future uh, is done by a massive community of people. I mentioned the security research community, but what I, what I have actually been impressed with this time round because I've been deeply involved in, in it is actually how civil servants and how government folks. Um, who aren't technologists, a lot of these people are policy people who don't understand, they're not engineers, um, but that they listen and then and they can interpret it well and they can understand it. And what they bring to the picture is a complete understanding of how, you know, in our case in the UK, Parliament works, which is probably more complicated than all the hacking stuff we do, to be honest, um, or sure. all of all of the procedures and protocols and so on, and how to actually get stuff into law is, is very, very difficult, and, and whether it needs to be put into law as well. Uh, and that's where the sort of companies come in as well. They're part of that process as well. You know, if you don't really want overburden, overburdening um, the sort of manufacturing community or overburdensome regulation or legislation. So getting that balance right is really, really tough. But if we kind of roll back a few years, um, actually, uh, the mobile industry had done a lot of work because we'd been under a serious amount of, of attack for many, many years. Um, by the time we got to 2009, 2010, and you start to see the, the iPhone come come along and, and, and Android as a platform, uh, you know, we'd done a lot of work on and actually saying, well, we need secure foundations of trust you absolutely have to have hardware security in devices if you're going to succeed. If you're going to deploy things like um, firmware updates and uh, you, you want to have um, a, a secure boot that you can rely upon, then you have to have somewhere that you can trust the foundation of trust. And, and so all of that kind of stuff 
um, has been done years ago. And, and what we're really doing here with a lot of the work that's going on around the world is endorsing good practice. Um, so um, specifically what we created in the UK, so we had a, a committee of people that, that got together and uh, I was tasked with creating, I'm waving a document around right now, but uh, I've got probably one of the few physical copies of the code of practice uh, for consumer IoT security. Um, but I always viewed this as being, you know, foundational and fundamental to any kind of connected device security. It doesn't matter that it's, that it's particularly consumer. Um, one of the reasons that we hit the consumer space initially was because that, that was where problems were manifesting themselves really obviously. We had lots and lots of stories in the press about things like hacked baby webcams, uh, where, where people were shouting through them and so on. And the ordinary consumer doesn't have really the knowledge to be able to sort of configure networks or configure firewalls and things like that. And why should they? Uh, you know, that they should be presented with products that actually function out of the box and that don't require them to go down some complicated route. So we kind of lived with lots of like things that, that were bad practice for years and years and years. You know, the default passwords, for example, admin, admin, you know, they've been around for, for probably 50 years. If we, if we look into it, maybe more. And we probably had an opportunity to kind of stamp out that bad, bad practice. Uh, we saw, you know, going back to the mobile industry and the, the industrial space as well, a lot of the major really nasty attacks that have happened have ended up with a an entry point somewhere along the line that has a default password on a piece of network equipment. So part of building that sort of overall defense in depth would be to try to stamp out that bad practice and try to move away from legacy practices uh, for good. Um, and actually, to be honest with you, I'd like to stamp out the password in general. We have other technologies available to us now that can provide alternatives. Um, and um, I, I think I think now is the time. Um, I did sit, sit down with a guy from the from the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK. So I worked closely with with a lot of government departments and, and uh, bodies. And um, we sat down and we we said, how how would we have stopped Mirai? Uh, so Mirai was a, 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 a IoT botnet in 2016 um, that caused um, a, a very uh, severe impact on the internet, only for about 24 hours, which shows the resiliency of the internet, to be honest. Um, but it was kind of silly, really. It used 61 uh, default usernames and passwords for routers, uh, and the onward impact of that hit uh, telecoms companies, it hit um, cars, it hit all sorts of different things. Uh, and then those devices were taken over. And then essentially that botnet was used to to target individuals in some cases. Brian Krebs was one of those individuals that got targeted. Um, it caused quite a widespread impact. And actually the users themselves in a lot of cases didn't really notice. They didn't notice that their devices had been taken over. And, and uh, you know, it was a big problem, you know, um, the, all these legacy protocols that are out there. So in that case, it was Telnet, open port 23, uh, default password username, easy, easy to attack. Um, but in 2016, that sort of stuff shouldn't have happened. And 2022 definitely shouldn't happen. So we came out of this code of practice. Um, it got a, a lot of love from the start, which was fantastic. And what the UK government said was if industry didn't act quickly, then they would move down the path of legislation. 
Um, they didn't want to, but they needed to see a shift in the market. And what they saw almost immediately was no shift at all. And 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 I can tell you lots of stories about about people that said, you know, if it isn't law, we're not doing it. If, if there isn't a regulation, we're not doing it. And that that was the message I was hearing from Chinese companies. And actually, that's where a lot of the problem comes from. Uh, you know, if you look at the the long tail, the large long tail of millions of different types of products in the enterprise space and consumer space, it is really poorly manufactured. It's a, it's a software and hardware quality problem. It's a lack of security engineering and nobody seems to want to do anything about it. So um, here we are now, 2022. Um, it's the, the, the process has started to happen and we have something called the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill. So part one of that work is um, about product security and we're taking the top three from that code of practice uh, and, and passing that into law. Uh, and uh, it's, it's imminent, it's at the end of that process and hopefully everything will, will go through and then ultimately it will get in this country royal assent from the Queen uh, and become law. Um, now, you mentioned other parts of the world, of course. Uh, so uh, a lot of work has been going on in parallel. And I think the good thing about that is a lot of countries are talking to each other. Uh, one of the things that we did with the Code of Practice was translate it into uh, the main languages of the world. And, and I think we, the, there was a lot of benefit to be gained from that. We wanted manufacturers to see it. Um, so we had it in, in Mandarin Chinese, for example, um, we had it in Spanish and, and so on. And what that does is reduces the barriers to adoption immediately, especially amongst, amongst the engineering community, you know, might not speak English. Uh, and um, that's been really beneficial. So, so we're seeing a lot of harmonization around the world. And um, on behalf of the UK government, we also created this mapping website, uh, which you can visit now. It's called iotsecuritymapping.com. And um, that works also in international standard at CEN 303645. So that, that, that work was, uh, was, was, was also uh, done um, up and around the pandemic. And um, so a lot of that work around the world whether it be India, Australia, Singapore, Finland, uh, even to some extent the USA with the work from NIST is broadly aligned and we're all saying the same things. And that is fantastic. It's fantastic for the manufacturing community because it doesn't, it means that they don't have to create different products for different markets. They know that, that what we're saying, and that's the purpose of the mapping site actually is to also say this thing is the same as this thing. And so if you implement this, then you're good in these different countries. And um, I think I had an email this morning, actually, from from a manufacturer of uh, sports watches, connected sports watches, saying that their guys loved the site and that they were using it actively. And, and so that's really nice to hear, you know, because that's we, again, want to reduce the barriers for adoption. And ultimately, we want to secure uh, people around the world, whether it's businesses or, or consumers. I love it. I don't know if... if if you were able to figure out where were they obviously it's not law yet so they weren't triggered by the law to, to go to the mapping site to do the work so somebody found it and appreciated it and and recognized the value of of security yeah and, and i then, think that the noise is sort of growing as well and it has been yeah. for a while so i think you know any company that that is worth their salt should know that that regulation is coming around the world 
and that they need to to do something. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So getting ahead of that, uh, even even if it's just time to market with something, you're going to be forced to do is a benefit. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we learn from this and uh, do it because it's the right thing to do in the first place. But so talk to me a bit about how how this stuff is written because I we talk a lot to researchers and practitioners and line of business owners and it, there's always this if if you're if you're hacking something you're looking at it a certain way and then when you find something you have to translate what you found into what needs to be fixed and the people fixing it don't always understand what you uncovered maybe some do but they even even worse when you bring it to the business translating that into what what it means to the business is difficult now you you talked about bringing something into law which sounds like is a completely different way of looking at something and so i'm wondering how how that all comes together how do you sounds like it started with the 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 code of practice so that was written for companies to do better right and then translating that into something that could be that could make it into and pass into law, be passed into law. And then from that, whatever is passed in law, hopefully people can understand and do something with. So I'm wondering, was that carefully navigated as you were working on this? Yeah. So I think it's an interesting point you bring up here. And actually um, it's something that we were very aware of throughout the process. And I've seen a lot of misunderstandings along the way and, uh, I was talking a few weeks ago to a guy from the NCSC and I said, actually, we should have written a book on this because what happened was we entered into a new conversation about enforcement. How do we enforce this after it comes into law? There will be a regulator to say, you know, this stuff is bad or this stuff is good. And we met a bunch of new people that were completely, you know, greenhorns when it came to this stuff. And, and, um, Yeah, so I I think also that's why I've sort of personally stayed with this because I want to see it through to the bitter end and make sure that it kind of works. Um, But I think, go back to the starting of this, and and as I say, a lot of this good practice had already been worked out. A lot of the stuff in terms of the the recommendations in the code of practice, there are 13. uh, They're actually primarily outcome-based. So I sort of took a sort of smart approach, which is, that that we could hopefully measure some of that, you know. So because uh, um, the smart methodology, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, so on. Um, and 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 I think that that was a sort of winning formula um, because you can, especially when it comes to the sort of standards as well, you get all sorts of extra complications that come in. Um, you know, use of terminology. Uh, there was one point that so you know I I wrote one particular line where I used the word timely. And somebody said, what do you mean by timely? And I thought to myself, well, actually, I literally just wrote that sentence in like two seconds. It was very Um, timely, that writing. Yeah. (laughs) See, like, what do I I say? Um, So um, I kind of knew what I meant, but I had to properly articulate it. And also I got to one point where we had to decide, we we had to lay down, particularly for the lawmakers, what do we specifically mean by password and what does that mean in certain products? So, you know, does that also apply to a Bluetooth default key? Is that a password? And and so we had to start to define this stuff and start to break it apart. And that's when I started to, <laughs> you know, wonder whether I should be going to do something different because this was the sort of difficult, boring part. 
but it had to be done. And, and certainly in the standard space as well, when they come, come to write uh, the test specifications which go with the standard, then it gets really specific about, you know, what exactly are you saying here? What exactly are you expecting? And then when you get to sort of, for example, testing cryptography and things like that, it gets really, really a lot more complicated. Um, and, and all you want to say is like, well, just, just, just do the good stuff. Like just do proper, do this stuff properly. But actually it really does have to be defined because somebody somewhere has to go and test that thing and actually say, make a decision and say, yeah, that, that is a default password. And you haven't tried to game the system in any way. And I'm going to give this a pass or a fail. So, um, yeah, it's a difficult process. Um, also, when it gets to the legislators, you have to fit in with existing law and existing regulation. And, and obviously, you know, in, in also to a certain extent outside internationally, because you've got to fit in with, you know, how the world trades. Uh, you don't want to create technical barriers to trade. Um, you don't want to really go against, uh, you know, international norms in, in a lot of cases. So if there are other things that are happening, say, in Europe, for example, or the US about length of software updates, then we need to be cognizant of that. We need to be aware of certain regulations that are coming in that may have a beneficial effect or have a negative impact on it. Um, one other example I'd give you as well is vulnerability disclosure. So um, in the hacking community, we kind of take it for granted that, that you know, people are starting to understand what vulnerability disclosure is and that they accept it's good practice. But I still come up with conversations with people saying, oh, we can't talk to the hackers. Oh, they're all criminals and all the rest of it. And, and that's also, if you're a hacker, is what you get when you deal with a company that doesn't that hasn't done responsible disclosure or vulnerability disclosure properly. And they start to throw the lawyers at you or whatever. So the the fact, the simple fact that we've managed to get, or we're very close to getting CVD and vulnerability disclosure into law is absolutely massive. Um, you know, that, that that will be a, a big, big step change in terms of security research. Um, and, and these companies have got to understand it. Uh, myself and uh, a few other people gave evidence to uh, the, the, the scrutiny committee for the legislation. And one of the questions I got was from an industry body that said, essentially that we couldn't do vulnerability disclosure as industry um, because that would lead to vulnerabilities being disclosed before they were fixed. And I was sat there, you know, I didn't know what the question was in advance, but I was like, this is totally wrong. Like this is either a deliberate misinterpretation of what CVD is because they don't want to do it or they just don't get it. And both situations are really, really bad. Right. Um, so thankfully the, politicians sort of overrode that and and hopefully i explained what cvd was properly um but it just shows that uh we have a a lot of educating to do as well and i hope that at the end of this process maybe that's what's justifying it going into law is that we just can't trust that we'll get get it right as industry without some help really to say no you can't do these bad things because it's going to hurt people and actually there's a real safety risk coming down the road. And I think that's what's driving governments around the world. They see that the reliance on IoT in, a diff in lots and lots of different ways ha could have a real detrimental economic and 
physical personal effect on on their citizens and they 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 don't want to be on uh, beyond their watch when something goes really really badly wrong and kills people basically yeah and there's you touched on so many points so much to get right in terms of the balance between innovation and and uh and commerce and trade and then privacy and security of the citizens and your standing in the in the on the world stage compared to other other ways that uh, other countries operate and i mean so much to go into that and then and then you came to the point of of uh still some misunderstanding and education needed and i'm i'm wondering is is do you have any insight is is the law intended to be the education <laughs> or or is there something wrapped around it actually because if the education's the 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 stick that comes down when uh somebody audits and checks and says no you didn't do it well i think i think it's all part of the package isn't it so you know if we look at how this fits in with other other initiatives around cybersecurity and and you know you know both in the us and the uk We've got a lot of things going on around supply chain security, around telecom security and, and network infrastructure security. Um, it, it all ends up being one and the same thing ultimately. But of course, education is a big, big piece in that. And um, from the universities, we simply don't have um, the sort of pipeline. It's not big enough to be able to get enough people through for, for the need that we have. And there's lots of initiatives to, to what, how do we educate people in the workforce? How do we re, retrain people in the workforce as well? Um, and I think there's lots and lots of different people that can play a part in that, um, whether it's individuals or, um, or, or training institutions. Um, you know, it, it, there's a sort of a lot of, a lot of reskilling to do and a lot of, bringing up to 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 get to where we need to be um but i think for the for the people who do kind of understand where the problem areas are and we have a lot of people that do you know a lot of people would be back at and defcon who've come up not through any education system that you know there was no cybersecurity degrees or anything but they're in positions now where they can change things and as long as we're trusting those people to do the right thing and that we can sort of head off major attacks in the future, but, but at the same time training people, um, then we might dodge the bullet. Um, but we just got to stay the course. And, you know, there are the, the other thing to mention here is that the government's recognising this. So in the UK, we have the NCSC, the National Cybersecurity Centre, which has been a model for other countries. In the US, you have CISA. Uh, and other parts of other agencies that do some fantastic work. Um, part of their role as well is to sort of glue all these different bits of government together to make sure that they're going the right direction, whether it be from EV chargers for, for cars uh, or industrial sites or, or government communications. Um, and they see the whole the whole picture and they have some fantastic, really incredibly intelligent people there as well. So they're a fantastic resource that each country can draw on uh, to show them the way for, for the future. And so let's do our part here, David. Not that you haven't done your, your part already very, very well. 
Um, so a lot of the listeners of, of this show are security practitioners. We get a lot of researchers, uh, certainly security leaders, CISOs and whatnot. What can we tell them to maybe, and we're going to include links to the mapping site and to, uh, to the work we've done, the posts certainly that, uh, that prompted this and inspired this conversation. Um, so once they look at those things that we share with them, what, what can you, what can you tell them to help them operationalize this? That's how I like to put it. What, um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's here. We can, can you highlight what the top three from the, the code of practice yeah. came bubbled up and, and maybe what that means to a DevOps SecOps uh, program? Yeah, sure. Sure. And um, the first, thing obviously is don't panic i mean it, it <laughs> looks more complicated than it really is uh, but it's not um so so the top three and the things that are going into legislation so uh were uh, no default passwords uh so we want to get rid of those um the second one is to implement vulnerability disclosure policy and act on it <laughs> it doesn't mean just creating a contact form on a website and the third one is about keeping software updated although in the legislation what we want is actually transparency um so transparency gives us a sort of shines a light on where there's bad practices happening so if somebody's not going to get software updates then they really should know about it um that so so let's let's um start on uh th those in, and they were prioritized if you look at those 13 uh, items from the code of practice from from, from the ETCEN three hundred three six four five. Um, they were, in my view, and and somebody at the NCSC's view, the 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 sort of priority in which you sort of should should address these things. Um, so, uh, in, and a lot of them for for your CISOs and and practitioners will see seem obvious. Uh, things like communicating securely, um, but actually. You know, anybody who's worked in an organization for long enough realizes that actually there, you know, there's a lot of skeletons and closets and there's a lot of bodies buried all over the building. Um, and it's how we manage that legacy. So I would say, you know, um, if you're looking at a particular product, you're never going to get everything 100% right first time out. There are a lot of uh, pressures on you, whether in security engineering or whether you're in the sort of corporate side of the business where you possibly don't have control or you don't win the arguments. And so uh, if that is the case, uh, then you need to be just looking at how do you contain those problems and what can you build around that to prevent that becoming a big, big issue. Um, equally, if it's in a product that's got to be shipped and there may be economic reasons why you can't possibly sort of tear up the, the product or issue a new uh, rev of the board that you're working on then roadmap it you know specifically set a timeline on which you would like to achieve that and how to work towards it and then at least you have a goal to work towards and and also if you if you do have an issue um then you have an answer to that which is that's where we're going to be and and we're addressing that that threat and problem as we go um but you have to be kind of faithful to what you want to do. And obviously, you know, if you are going to ship, say something without hardware security, then you have to accept that that risk. You now, all, all of what we do is about risk management. 
Um, so you have to decide, well, am I going to increase maybe the telemetry monitoring? Because it may be that, uh, you know, we expect it to be compromised. So we maybe need to see uh, the traffic for when it is compromised to be able to do something about it. And then obviously plan to do something about it. Um, what can you do to in, in software updates, for example, to make the lives of, of a malicious hacker harder? Um, even if even again, if you haven't got the hardware security there. Um, if you have got hardware security, are you leveraging it to the to the right extent and have you implemented it properly? So um, a lot of the configuration errors and so on that we see, um, you know, stem from assumptions people have made. And, and what happens is, you know, you end up with a lot of stuff that probably shouldn't be in there. So look at, you know, what libraries you've got, for example. Have you been able to minimize those? If you stripped out functionality that you really don't need, have, have you made sure that there's there's not writable memory where, the, where, where it doesn't need to be? Are there credentials kicking around that, that you haven't thought about? Um, a lot of the companies that I talk to don't actually really, especially for the first iteration of a product, they don't, they don't really want to go through any kind of product security review. Um, but you can do that yourself. You can get, you know, static static code analysis software quite cheaply. Um, that will flush out a, a lot of basic issues. Um, you can make sure that you're dealing with uh, hardware and, and software that is up to date and isn't like three revs behind. Um, and the counter arguments that might be, well, that's too expensive. You know, we, we can't afford to buy the latest generation of this particular Bluetooth chipset, for example because it's, you know, it increases the bomb unacceptably by another $2 per device. But that's the wrong way of thinking about things. You need to think about, well, what security debt, what technical debt are you accumulating by making that decision to buy the cheaper device? Because are you actually increasing the obsolescence of your device? You know, are you shortening the device lifespan by making that decision at that point? And, and that is a sort of business and security risk decision to make and you should involve you know the board with those sorts of things as well uh, because that's a strategic decision as much as anything um but just try not to confine your thinking to to the here and now think about what happens at the end when is that device going to be obsolete when when you're gonna when's it gonna die and, and you should think about the whole product security lifecycle from inception to removal from the market. And that gives you a, a sort of more objective picture as a thing that you're building and the thing that you're managing as well, because you've got all the cloud infrastructure that goes with that. You've got loads of different APIs and so on, and it can all look extremely scary, but but it isn't just, just you know, eat the elephant slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know maybe in some universities somewhere they're in in business class they're teaching how to think like that because <laughs> um, i mean it's those questions i mean it's a perfect example Look, um, uh, what what's the how resilient is your product how resilient is your company based on the collection of products you have and um and we're coming up uh close to time here so I still have a gazillion questions and I, I can see another one of our hosts having a, a completely different conversation on the, the legislative side with you and policy side with you. Um, but maybe, maybe as we wrap, um, 
trying to think would be a good good closing point because I guess maybe the the to to that last point to the competitive nature uh, the competitive advantage of doing this right you mentioned the the company that uh, sent the emails and think they they appreciate the mapping uh, how how can security practitioners turn what you've done into a message that says this is the right thing to do this is again a, a really fantastic question because um you know it is difficult to to sell security um you know what you're doing is selling cost that's the perception maybe maybe the the argument is changing um certainly the consumer awareness uh of privacy particularly or the perception that all connected devices are abusing their privacy is damaging to the overall iot market and i think uh, for some bigger companies out there they they one of the motivations to get involved in this sort of stuff is to to address that kind of argument which is often that per, that perception is in some cases created because of products with poor security so if we can eliminate those from the market that helps the market overall um i think one thing i always used to comment on was you know startup startup and vc advice uh for for particularly for iot startups was was often like uh, sort of centered around books like the lean startup and if you read that book it it's horrifying because it basically says um, ship crap you know it's, it's it doesn't matter if the product's not finished just just get it on the market and you can sort everything out later that isn't the case for security um and it's really really the wrong message and and you you cannot afford to do that because yeah for sean from a short-termist perspective if you want to get out quickly that's fine but for actually for a product that works and for consumers and and, and enterprises to and businesses to trust you as a business entity, then doing the right thing and and acting as a as a sort of good um, participant in the community is is going to pay dividends because you will get increased customer loyalty, you'll get increased trust, and that will lead to greater sales. And that's the market isn't going to go in any other direction now. You know, the, the governments around the world are legislating for this stuff, so that actually supports those companies that are doing the right thing. So you asked earlier about, you know, well, what's the benefit of legislation? This actually creates a level of playing field for those companies who are doing the right thing because it forces those companies who are not doing the right thing to come up to them. And so then we can kind of move up. So what we're saying is that, um, that, that, also, that also means that security isn't a luxury for the rich. Um, it means that everybody gets it's a certain level of security which benefits everyone. Uh, so uh, I think I love that, that point too. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, whether it's consumer or SME, uh, you know, for small companies, you know, if you look at some of the major attacks, you know, look at some of the major nation-state attacks, they often start by leveraging an SME or a consumer. It's it, and so you know that those are the things that we need to concentrate on. It's the you know, the, the off-sited fish tank in the casino problem, right? That's right. Are you going to go visit that when you're in Vegas? No. 
Uh, you've already visited remotely, I'm sure. Uh, excellent, excellent conversation, David. And uh, I, I appreciate the the work that you've done and and uh, putting the post together, which uh, somehow I came across. So it's probably Aaron liked it or something. I don't know. And that, that hit my feet. Well, a shout out to Aaron as well because of the work of right. uh, the Cloud Security Alliance, uh, particularly, and uh, other bodies around the world. You know, there, there are so many sort of allies to this cause. Uh, you know, from individuals to organizations who are supporting this right now. And I think it's absolutely amazing. We're, we're in a sort of golden age of, of intellectualism around uh, future security, I think. Exactly. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, David, and, and hopefully we'll get a chance to connect uh, at the conference as well. And I mean, you're welcome anytime back on the show, other, other updates you have, uh, other work you're working on. And uh, yeah, for those listening, Hopefully you you enjoyed this conversation, got a few nuggets to to help move your hardware-based IoT uh, company forward in a safe and secure fashion. <laughs> if you don't do it today, you'll have to tomorrow once the law passes. So <laughs> there'll be loads of links uh, to the post, to the mapping site, uh, David's profile on social media, so you, you too can get his LinkedIn posts uh, crossing your feed. And uh, thanks, everybody, for helping to continue to redefine cybersecurity and uh, operationalize it in a way that uh, makes business safer. So thanks again, David. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sean. Asgardia by WSO2 is a developer-focused identity and access management solution. Offered as Identity as a Service, or IDAS, Asgardio by WSO2 creates seamless login experiences to your apps in minutes. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.